Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey, thanks for tuning in. This is a special Solar Power International 2019 episode recorded live at a breakfast hosted by Silverline Communications in celebration of their 10 year anniversary. I was the MC for this event and enjoyed it immensely. Thank you to Ellen Bacchus and Laura Taylor, the president of Silverline, for inviting me to be the MC. The panel is very interesting. The topic is clean energy 10 years after the American Reinvestment and Recovery Act. It was a breakfast panel, as I noted, and we had a lot of fun during this breakfast panel in Salt Lake City. Thanks again to the Silverline team for all their hard work. I hope that you'll enjoy this discussion. The speakers are a fantastic panel. Laura Abram, Director of Public Affairs at First Solar. Gil Jenkins, Director of Corporate Communications at Hannon Armstrong. Greg Merritt, Director of Marketing and Communications at the Solar Electric Power Alliance. Kelly Speaks Bachman, Chief Executive Officer at Energy Storage Association. Tom Warrick, the Director of Marketing at Rubicon Capital Advisors. And of course, the President of Silverline Communications herself, Laura Taylor, as the moderator. I'll leave you with this panel and hope that you do enjoy as much as we did in person. What we want to have a discussion around is not just the 10 years that have elapsed since the beginning of a fantastic communications company called Silverline, but we had the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act instituted in 2009, around the same time that Silverline was begun. And it's been, if you've been along the ride with us, as many of you have, a... Not, not less of a solar coaster uh, than it had been before, right? It's been more like a rocket ship. The industry has boomed. We had less than two gigawatts of solar installed in the United States in 2009, according to Wikipedia. According to Abby's stats yesterday, it was less than two gigawatts in 2000. So I'm going to have to figure out which one is right. But nonetheless, next year, we expect to have 95 gigawatts installed in the United States. That is a phenomenal growth, right? And it's still just the tip of the iceberg, right? So we're going to talk a bit about what's happened from a policy and regulatory perspective in the last 10 years that matters, that has given us the trajectory that we're on now. And we're going to also talk about where we're going from here, right? Not just the last 10 years, but what's the next 10 years look like? Abby talked yesterday in the intro uh, panel. If you were, how many of you made that introduction panel? I don't want to belabor the point. Great. So you guys will, <laughs> I'll replay it for you on Suncast. So Abby talked about the next decade of solar, which they're calling the solar plus decade. And I would encourage you to go read the SIA report that was, le- that was released yesterday. Uh, it is really, really quite interesting about the roadmap and the messaging that we all need to get on, right? The, the, the common communication, the common core of how do we bring, uh, as an industry, the, the, the level of electric generation from renewable energy and preferably solar and storage and wind and hydro up to the next level, right? So with that, we're going to bring up our esteemed panel. I w- we'll do one by one? Yeah, sure. Why not? Sure. Yep. So we'll start with Laura Abram. 
Laura is the Director of Project Execution and Public Affairs at First Solar. And Laura has been, come on, come on up. Laura has been up, uh, she's been at First Solar for the entirety, for the entirety of the Silverline Communications uh, duration as well, 10 years. And I like to say Laura is a thin film junkie. She was at Opta Solar before First Solar and uh, has a long history in, uh, sil- in the, the silicon industry, right? Semiconductor industry. Welcome, Laura. Next, we have Gil Jenkins, known by few in the world as Gilloan. Gilloan has, uh, is the director of corporate communications at Hannon Armstrong and hails originally from Oregon. He can tell you some fun stories about his, child, his childhood and uh, his family, uh, the, the family fascination with uh, Tolkien. <laughs> Next, we have Greg Merritt. Greg is the Director of Marketing and Communications at the Smart Electric Power Association, SEPA, as it were. Greg is a native Virginian. He spent some time down in North Carolina, where I also live, working in telecommunications before making his way back to Virginia and finding his love of, uh, of working in the solar industry and the clean energy business. He also is a fanatic for vintage cars and uh, might be the only one in the room who's driven a vintage 1960s Lamborghini. Raise your hand if that's also true for you. All right. Fantastic. Next week. What's that? It's almost the same. They probably got the same gas mileage, frankly. (laughs) And just just for those of you production people in the audience, don't ever put the ball guy under the overhead line. (laughs) I'd like to invite... I'd like to invite Kelly Speaks Bachman up. Kelly is the CEO of the Energy Storage Association. She also hails from closer to the east than the west and, um, and spends a significant portion of her time with her family over in Finland. And uh, if, so if you're interested in what to do, like the top 10 things to do in Finland, please check in with Kelly. But she's going to wow us today with all of the data around how storage is, in fact, one of the key levers to take this industry to the next level. And then last but certainly not least, uh, our panelists, we have Mr. Tom Warrick. Tom is the Director of Global Marketing at Rubicon Capital Capital Advisors. Tom uh, has been in the industry for a while as well, around the Beltway. Many of you know him from his uh, previous roles, perhaps. But Tom has has the distinction of perhaps the furthest traveled, and that is furthest traveled for work in the room. I would dare say that uh, there probably aren't others who have traveled to Antarctica with a British OBE, someone in the royal order, to test solar in Antarctica, which is, uh, which is something that's now on my bucket list because I always aspire to do things that Tom does. I said last but not least, but certainly I don't want to uh, overlook the fact that we have an incredible host, Laura Taylor. Laura is the founder and CEO of, of uh, Silverline Communications. Uh, if you aren't familiar with Laura, uh, I, th- I would encourage you to ask her the story of the founding of Silverline. And if you uh, are patient, then you'll be able to hear it on Suncast because I, prom- I made her promise that she would do an interview with me today. Uh, so Laura has, uh, has brought Silverline through 10 years of incredible growth, brings some remarkable experience from Edelman and many other corporate experiences pri- prior to that. Clearly a leader in the communication space for the industry. And with that, I'm going to hand it over to her to lead this discussion. 
Thank you so much, Nico. We really really appreciate you being here today and happy to be on the Suncast podcast um, this week during the show. So appreciate it. And uh, on your table, you're probably wondering why you have honey. Uh, It's because Rob Davis of Fresh Energy was kind enough um, to provide the honey. And if you're curious, I heard there's a fantastic story behind the honey Um, Ellen came back last night really energized um, by her discussion with Rob. So I'll just throw it out there. Um, Please talk to Rob afterwards um, about the honey and uh, why you might have it in front of you. But I heard it's tasty and there's a good story. So it's all good. Thanks. Well, thank you all for coming this morning. And we really appreciate, um, you know, you getting, getting up early. I know there was a lot of, uh, a lot of events last night and, um, us East coasters, we've been up for hours. I think Kelly said, this is like brunch for us, you know, so, um, so thank you. And, um, also thank you to the, uh, the Silverline team. Uh, I know there's team members here. I'm looking at one of them. Joey, you want to stand up? Say hello. There you are. This is Joey Marquardt. He is our Western Region um, Senior Vice President located here out of um, Salt Lake City. So just happened to be located in Salt Lake City and SPI was happening this year. So there you go. A convergence. Thanks, Joey. Um, he's a recent addition to the team. And there's Ellen Backus out of our Chicago office. She's uh, heading up the Midwest region as the Senior Vice President there. And we're happy to um, happy to have both of them on board. I've collaborated with them for many, many, many years. So thank you both. And then there's Tori and Jacqueline. I know you are, you're instrumental to making all this happen. So if you see pens and programs and um, t-shirts and and whatnot, um, that's really the team that made all this uh, special and distinctive today. So thank you very much. Um, and I see Rob Sternthal's here. Wow. Look at that. Hi, Rob. Yeah, that's nice. Well, welcome. Um, Okay, so good. So we had a prep conversation, and I think this one's live too, right? AV guy? Okay, yeah. And um, Mr. AV. Mr. AV guy. Uh, Our Lionel Richie channel went away, didn't it? Um, Okay, so we had a little prep discussion, and I thought that everybody had some really great things to lend to the conversation that were very unique to your position, your view of the world. And I think one of the one of the things that came up um, during the conversation, and it's on it was on the prep sheets, is did your role exist ten years ago? You know, if we look back ten years ago, did the role did the roles that were in exist? I know for me when I started um, Silverline, I remember I was in the top floor of my townhome. Typing on, typing away on press releases and taking phone calls and whatnot. And in the corner, in the bookcase, there was a Newsweek with Arnold Schwarzenegger on the front, and he was holding a globe, and it, it had something about saving the planet. And that was from um, April um, 2006, I think it was. And so, you know, I, every day I'd go up and I'd look at this Newsweek cover with Arnold on the front. It's very inspirational. And then there was the inconvenient truth came out around that time. And then the, um, the era that Obama um, was in office and it was, a, it was a new dawn in terms, it felt like clean energy. Um, and then we had um, Arnold in office for a full term. And there was just so many things going on at the time that were inspirational. 
people and helped with uh, helped with really divining what we wanted to do with the business, the path we wanted to to move forward with, and we committed fully to um, to clean energy work. And so here we are, ten years later. And I I was thinking about this. You know, would our roles have existed ten years ago? I know mine was. I was just hoping that renewables would come to the East Coast significantly, so we'd have East Coast customers. Um, but yeah, I think if we go down the line and talk about maybe your role 10 years ago, where were you? Would you have had this role 10 years ago? How, how have things changed? Well, I mean, Kelly, the... Thank you. I have never, I've never been accused of not being loud enough. So can y'all in the back hear me? <laughs> so, I mean, I, I run the Energy Storage Association. My role did not exist 10 years ago, right? <laughs> we, um, you know, it's funny. Our association is actually 28 years old. But 10 years ago, it was a couple of guys in a Holiday Inn sitting around figuring out how they're going to get more DOE money. And that was about the extent of what where storage was 10 years ago. Um, it took a lot of um, took a lot of work from the commercial perspective. And, I'll, and then I'll fast forward to um, to even three years ago. I would say we were two employees at Energy Storage Association. We've had about a 400 percent increase. Now we're eight. <laughs> but um, it's it, energy storage is new to the marketplace. It's not new in technologies. It's not it's not new at all in when you think of the broader technologies of what energy storage is. When you think of pumped hydro, that's storage. When you think of your water heater, that is actually energy storage. So how do you harness that? It's the, the technologies that have come forward that really are enabling this to be be played into the market. So it's not just batteries, but it's the fact that you can do demand response now. Um, there are controls available. So it's, it's, it's a very different world for us 10 years ago. 10 years ago for me, I was just, I had just left Sun Edison, where we kind of upended the entirety of the solar market by saying, hey, you can finance this with a third party, right? So you're now beginning to see, we were, I, we were joking this morning saying, woohoo, we got a 200 kilowatt project going. This is awesome. We're going to change the world. And now look at where solar is. It's pretty amazing. So that's where I was 10 years ago. Great. What's going on line here? Ten, ten years ago, I was only 16. But, um, uh, ten years ago, I was trying to convince the world uh, that LED lighting was real, with Laura's help, actually, um, and that it wasn't blue and that it would actually last a long time. Um, but SEPA, ten years, actually, SEPA just had, we just had our 27th anniversary last week. So it's been around a long time. Those of you that went to the... Uh, opening session last night, we would understand that they were doing solar 10 years ago, really only. Um, and my role did exist, although it was a much smaller organization. Uh, what, you know, the evolution that's taken place, obviously, in both of those areas, that LED lighting is now the de facto standard for pretty much all lighting. And SEPA is now focused on the much broader clean energy and, and carbon reduction uh, market that we that we face today great um 
Well, what's fantastic is when I look around the room and I think about 10 years ago, uh, many of us were starting out. And it's great that we all kept in the industry. I think that's the biggest telling sign of renewables really achieving its potential is we, we retained really good people. Um, 10 years ago, we were an industry, I would say, that was striving for talent, especially in the marketing, PR, communications realm. It was quite new. So, uh, you know, looking back, I was uh, back then, 10 years ago, I was employee number two at ACOR, the American Council on Renewable Energy. We had maybe, uh, and you'd appreciate this, maybe a $200,000 budget. Yeah. <laughs> um, we were struggling against a fairly fraction industry. You know, from the 70s, you had the solar industry fighting for their piece of the pie, the wind industry fighting for their piece of the pie, geothermal, hydro, you name it. And the biggest challenge was how to really unite the industry with core common principles and really have a positive campaign of pro-renewables and against nothing. And uh, I remember back then, Mike Eckhart, who founded Acor, who just recently, actually this, this last July, retired from uh, Citigroup after being the global head of uh, renewables finance. Um, he really propelled us and I think challenged many of us that were in our early 20s who are coming to this new industry with our naive B guys. He really challenged us, I think, to think positively, to unite people, and to get Wall Street to really seriously finance renewables. Back then, the bulge brackets were looking at it. They were saying, hey, pricing technology is too high. The risk is too averse. There's no PPAs in sight. The utilities are, are pushing against it. Mm, we don't know. So our biggest challenge was getting that financing online. And I would say the biggest you know, difference I've seen is just the sophistication at which we finance renewables projects, both small micro scale as well as utility scale. And same with Kelly. I was you know, talking to some folks outside the room and, and you, know, to, you know, Kevin Gresham and others. And, you know, when you think about even the wind industry, I remember when Gamesa came out with a 2.5 megawatt offshore wind. And I was like, oh, God, that's huge. <laughs> and now, you know, you read about Orsted and G's partnership and, you know, 12.5 megawatt turbines coming out that are larger than my apartment in New York, right, out there in the ocean. Or when you, you, know, you read about the news, you know, with First Solar or Hanwha Q-Cells, for example, yesterday, launching their Georgia facility, they'll have 12,000 modules being created um, you know, yearly, and then and 1.7 gigawatts of solar being manufactured. I mean, big numbers. This is how you know it, uh, that we've made it. Um, but I would say even with Rubicon, you know, we're an Irish firm. Eight years ago, many of, of our bankers were um, you know, at Scotia, at DEFA, at City, uh, you know, they're, they're doing their work looking at infrastructure, right? And for us, we're a new market as of a year ago. We really entered the North American market with an infrastructure background saying, you know what, it's our time to really do something with renewables. So I think new market entrants have really also defined, you know, where we've, how we've achieved success. You know, if you told me Walmart and Ikea and, you know, the strategics, Mitsubishi, all these guys would be in this industry today, I would have been like, okay, that's, that's great. That's great to dream. But, you know, we've, I think, achieved it. But uh, many of us are here as a result of those, I think, initial mentors who I would say really propelled us, you know, and, and told us you can do it and got us here today. That's true. Ten years ago. Um, let's see. I, I was out in San Francisco. I was, I was an agency guy uh, trying to build a book of business with a sort of tenuous set of clean tech startups at various stages of success or failure because the VCs were starting to get interested in this. And uh, I remember being fascinated, as I still am, by the technology and the innovation that was happening. But um, maybe by function of being one of the younger people in the firm, I was given the latitude to, hey, go start our clean tech and sustainability practice. And when you're in San Francisco, you dream big and you fail hard as well. But um, there was a lack of maturity, certainly, in 
I sort of hoped we'd be here 10 years from now. Some ways I wish we were farther along. Uh, for me, I got into this business because uh, I have a deep reverence for nature and a, a deep concern about climate change. And I'm in a role now where we're a publicly traded uh, capital provider that's focused exclusively on climate change solutions, so wind, solar, storage, but also on solutions uh, for resilience. That that job didn't exist two years ago. The specialty finance company that went public maybe five years ago, they didn't have a need to tell their story in, in communications. So that's a sense of the maturity. Um, so, uh, you know, we've come a long way. Uh, I don't think we've... Uh, fully embraced the mainstream nature of what we do. Ten years ago, it was alternative energy. If you ever hear that word in any forum, please correct that person immediately. I don't hear it as much anymore, but... Well, I, I sat next to a gentleman from ExxonMobil yesterday on my way from Houston. He called it alternative energy for three hours. On it's a slight. And, we can, and, and this, is a, this is a panel about messaging and narrative. Narrative is powerful, right? And, and so that's, that's our job as communicators and marketers. So uh, be, be glad that we're cost competitive and that we're competing, but um, we still have to maintain that nimbleness, I think, that allowed us to get to this point. And uh, it's going to continue to be a fight because legacy industries don't change easily. And uh, change is hard. So um, it's a privilege to work in this industry. And I think because of that, um, you know, we have to work harder to compete. Thanks. Uh, so about 10 years ago, I was at a company called OptiSolar and then found myself at a company called First Solar uh, when the project pipeline got acquired. And, you know, we were working on, believe it or not, one of the projects we had in OptiSolar's portfolio was a 550 megawatt, we had two of them, 550 megawatt projects that had never been done before. So I was fortunate to work on some of those and feeling our way through that, you know, how do you go about permitting? One of them was on BLM land, which is, those of you familiar with that, is itself in a challenge. And the other was on farmland where you had to cobble together all these different landowners. And then you had to figure out how to get it financed, how to get it permitted, how to get it built. All in the wake of this stuff's too expensive, it's not going to work, no one believes in it, it's alternative. <laughs> And now those plants are operating, and uh, they're not even the biggest in the world. That's being surpassed. So it's just mind-boggling to see how far we've come. And the cost of those PPAs at the time, 150 megawatt, 160 megawatt, you know what it is? Today we're getting sub-25. So, And that's what's driving it to be mainstream. I mean, think about it. You know, What do you say to that guy? We're cheaper than coal. <laughs> We're cheaper than natural gas. And that's what's driving it. Corporate renewables uh, are another driver. So it's utilities that are procuring utility-scale solar. But in the east, southeast, where is that coming from? It's not necessarily an RPS. It's coming from the demands from Facebook, from Microsoft, from Walmart. Look how far we've come. And it's that demand that I think is making the difference. So I'm really proud to have gone from being in the semiconductor industry where it was all about faster, cheaper, smaller, to be doing something that's really meaningful. 
and um, trying to address the incredible climate change issues that we're all facing today. Thank you. I think that leaves us off on a good point, which is milestones. And we had talked a little bit on the phone about milestones. You know, when did we realize things were changing and what were those moments? I know, Gil, you had mentioned Super Bowl messaging or super or advertising and advertising that had changed. And you saw the shift um, in that. And so and then somebody else said Solyndra. And I, but do you want to go through kind of the milestones that, that you when you recognized, hey, this is really this is a shift. We're in a di- we're in a different path. Here, I like your consumer point. Well, we're talking about ten years. I I just think even in the last two years, there's been a tremendous shift in the consciousness about ideas that uh, were were radical even a few years ago. This notion of, and we can debate the semantics of this. This notion of 100% renewable electricity was laughable, but that polls really well. That's like an 80-20 issue. Americans want. 100% 100% renewable energy. It's problematic, so we should 100% clean electricity. So that that kind of demand, particularly from the younger generation, uh, America's lead is leading brands who are purchasing these renewables to make their companies more efficient and save money are say. Now that message is getting to the product marketers, and that to me is when you start to see a shift. It's not just a B two B story you know, edging up against greenwashing. This is like, no, this is a competitive differentiator to sell more consumer projects. So whether it was tied, you know, proudly putting the fact that their stuff is bio-based and made with wind power on, uh, on their detergent PNG doing that a few years ago, but Budweiser, you know, Allowing putting a hundred percent renewable electricity label on their iconic King of beers, uh, product marketers don't give real estate away very easily on, on that can, especially a can. And the bud drinker isn't necessarily who you'd think of the person that cares about renewable energy. That's when it's starting to shift. And then the the sort of cherry on top is if I'm sh- folks who saw the Super Bowl, that seven million dollar spot was a Bob Dylan song and and uh, the Clydesdales riding in a sort of morning in America shot of wind turbines. Okay. That that change is when it becomes mainstream, when Budweiser, when Tide, and so we need to celebrate these mo- these moments, and uh, you know also inform that on in our own purchasing decisions. But that's encouraging to me as we, as we truly become mainstream. We hope to see that I think in vehicles next, electric vehicles. But we've got a way to go there. I remember being on the hill with Greg and going to the architect of the Capitol's office, and we would we were. Um, educating him using slides that we're talking about vinyl to disc. And this is like, you know, old school lighting to LEDs. And we were trying to give him all of these technology, you know, yeah, uh, examples. And then they put the Capitol Dome out to bid for LED lighting. And I thought for myself, I thought, that's it. We talked to that guy and now it's out to bid. And that was for me, one of those moments working with you in particular of, Hey, that's cool. We arrived at that place where they really, that, that all worked. I remember looking at the thermostat in his office and he was, 
just tapping it going, oh my God, these things are from the Taft administration. And there they go. They're putting LEDs on the, on the dome. But, you know, that was a milestone, I think, in the work with Greg. But just overall, it was a very interesting point in time. I know you had two employees. Well, you were number two at ACOR <laughs> of two. Um, what happened? What was a milestone for you when you really saw ACOR take off in that period? Yeah, no, I, I think there are like two milestones, right? Um, to Gil's point that it, you know, you saw this trajectory, right? So the first one was, I, I remember... 2005, 2006, um, we had just partnered with Your Money uh, uh, on putting on an event called Ref Wall Street, which still exists. Um, and I remember sitting there, and the stage had the head of renewables finance for all the bulge brackets, you know, Goldman, Citigroup, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, uh, you name it. And just sitting there at that moment and hearing them all try to fight over each other about how they're launching into the renewables market, how they're going to start financing projects. What are some products and services they're putting out there into the market? And, you know, just sitting there and going, wow, wow, they're, they're really getting into this market. And, you know, that's when we started talking about Genesis, like proxy revenue swaps. Um, green bonds were starting to be written, right? So that was something that was being championed uh, or the foundations were being championed around then. Um, M&A and renewables started to be seriously taken as, as a serious topic, right? Tax equity, uh, you know, uh, it kind of started to be taking advantage of. And that's where we had the ramp up with the ITC and the PTC, right? Um, so that was, I would say, the first moment. The second one was um, I had the privilege uh, to be the only Republican, um, actually, and that's a scandalous thing probably from this morning, uh, to be the only Republican um, uh, to actually be an advisor for the Obama administration in TPAC, which was the precursor of all the trade conversations we have today, right, on renewables um, and representing the renewables industry, basically, in regards to trade issues that will be coming up in the next five to ten years. Uh, and this was a committee called TPAC under Ambassador Froman, which under the U.S. Uh, you know, ambassador on, on trade. And it was fascinating to me. Um, I had a moment where we were sitting around a table and there were representatives from each of the sectors, pharma, steel, fisheries, you name it. And renewables actually had their own seat. And I think that's when I realized that for the first time in a long, in a long time, we had an equal uh, seat at the table. And they were asking us for our opinion on where trade was going to go. Now, we all know where trade is right now with the China trade war and with steel, trade wars going on, things like that. But I think that was another moment where I realized, um, you know, semiconductors would love a seat at the table. How many lobbyists, how many industries would want to be at that table, right, to give their opinion on trade? And we actually had, we were one of the very few that was supposed called out. So I think that was, um, that was kind of a moment also that kind of really woke things up, yeah. So I want to take a slightly different tack um, to the milestone conversation. So I've been I've been working in the technology industry for longer than ten years, and observing how how technology gets adopted and when it becomes mainstream and when people recognize that it is mainstream. And and there's a couple of things I want to point out. One is when you when you start out with a technology, it's probably more expensive. And it's probably complex, and it may not be super reliable, but it has promise, right? It has promise, and that's the part of that's the part of the journey where it helps to have subsidies, it helps to have um, people with deep pockets uh, and long long payback periods. Um, so you have a you have an awareness of the people you're trying to engage and do business with, and then you have sort of the conventional wisdom, which is which is beyond that, right? Which is what Joe in the street thinks about this technology or not, and and the milestones 
for clean and we'll just say clean energy technologies, right? They typically get a small wave, anybody that's read Crossing the Chasm, right? I didn't make this up. They get a small wave based on those early incentives. But when they really start to take off is when the economics become compelling, mm-hmm. right? When, when people figure out they can make more money doing it than not doing it is when the wave becomes unstoppable. Um, and often that happens, and you, you brought up Walmart, right? I mean, when I worked in the LED lighting business, right, when Walmart started installing LED lighting, you go, well, they're not doing it because it's green. They're doing it because it's cheap, <laughs> right, in a, in a long-term view. Um, and But the shoppers at Walmart didn't really know that, right? They may have recognized that the lighting cases turned on when they walked around the corner, which was, was pretty cool. cool. Um, so, so I think there's a couple milestones, right? The one milestone is when, I'll just call it the industry, figures out that there's money to be made mm-hmm. and that, it can reliably be made, right? You're not, you're not betting your career. Everybody's sitting around these tables, right? You make a decision to deploy something. You're thinking, well, yeah, is this good or not? And am I going to get fired if it doesn't work out, right? And, and most people th- have those, those thoughts. So that's one set of milestones when it sort of becomes economically compelling. And I think, as you've heard, right, many of the clean energy technologies crossed that a while ago, and, and others are still are still getting there. Um, but then there's a second wave and the second set of milestones, which is when the people in the street recognize that this has happened and that the de facto has changed. And, and I want to, I want to, I want to draw a little distinction here, right? So those of us in this room, we're all sort of inside baseball. So we say, oh, yeah, well, everybody knows that solar's cheaper than coal or wind's cheaper than coal. And everybody knows that you don't need subsidies so much anymore, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But they don't, right? The people that are paying attention, though, people that watched the Super Bowl ad and said, wow, Budweiser had windmills, right? They're actually thinking about it. But then there's a whole nother segment of America or any country that doesn't really realize that yet. And as marketers, that's another set of challenges, right? And if you assume they do, that's a problem, right? That means your messages are going to hit a wall, because you're going to say, well, everybody knows this, so I don't have to tell them. But you actually have to keep telling them. So how many marketers in the room? All right. Tell them, tell them, tell them again, right? And then tell them you told them, right? <laughs> that's sort of the way it works. And I think that's the phase That's the phase that this industry is in now with the broader collective, which is we have to keep telling them. Because not everybody's there yet. So I'm I'm hearing from a, a lot of my fellow panelists about like double inflection points in the clean energy transition, and I and I um, I'll just contribute a little bit of my experience to that in that, you know, in around 2005, as you were, as you were saying, uh, we, um, I was working with United Technologies and they partnered up with Lafarge, Tokyo Electric Power, Weyerhaeuser, a paper manufacturer, uh, DuPont, and a number of other companies in the World Business Council for Sustainable Development to figure out how to get to net zero energies and to have major, you know, to have massive Fortune 50 companies 
and, and larger even to acknowledge that we need to figure out something different, a different path than what we're going for buildings. It wasn't just about efficiency. It was how do you generate, how do you make more clean energy? How do you use less of it? And then how do you share it between buildings was a really important inflection point for businesses that were selling to other businesses, but also consumer products to understand um, that this is an important aspect. And then for me, the next inflection point that I started realizing this is this is really happening and this is exciting is um, in uh, when states started to begin to use era money, the the um, money that was put forth for states to figure out how to get to a clean energy revolution. Because now I was in Maryland Public, uh, I was at Maryland Energy Administration and then the Public Service Commission during that period, and now you're seeing people put solar on their roofs. And now you're seeing it when you're driving through your neighborhoods, right? Now you're seeing it affect people's lives. And hey, that's kind of cool. They have a lower cost of electricity than I. I don't think that happened around two. That might have happened around 2011, 12, where you could actually get on your bill, like where you're using less energy than your neighbor. And now it's a competition. And now you've got this in your everyday life. And for me, that was really an inflection point. And then today, skip forward a little bit to today, like I feel like I'm in a Macklemore song where this is my moment. <laughs> this is awesome. <laughs> we have, um, you know, storage is here. Storage doubled its market last year. It's going to double it again this year. We're well on track. We're going to triple it in 2020. And that's even with the stupid tariffs that are being put, <laughs> put out there. That's, that's with no support from an ITC as a standalone resource. Um, we're working to get that because we think tripling it is not enough. We want to be there to help with the marketplace, to help with solar and wind, to make sure that this is a resilient grid that happens to be 100% renewable and 100% clean. So this is, it's, it's really an awesome sort of set of change, step changes. Good moment. Good moment. I'll take it back. Laura, did you have anything you wanted to add? Uh, sure, I can quickly, yeah, just add. In terms of looking at those milestone moments and uh, we mentioned Solyndra. Yeah, that came up for me because that was a moment where, you know, we were in the middle of building these large solar plants. And yes, we had DOE loan guarantees, but Solyndra was a technology that wasn't really proven. And I feel like it was something that the naysayers latched onto. And for those of you, a lot of you in marketing, they use that, right? They use that to say, see, it doesn't work. See, these, you know, this isn't, and I'm sitting here with three DOE loan guarantees with projects that are working. So it's the proof points. It's the proof points that tell the story. And that's what we have today. We have the proof points. <laughs> They're out there. And that's really exciting to have been a part of proving that out true and continuing to do that. And we have to continue to prove it out. Now we have to prove, yes, we can reach 100%. We can have a flexible grid uh, where we can have resiliency and we can ramp up and ramp down actually faster than traditional resources. So this is coming. So we're ready to create the next set of proof points so that we can show that we are mainstream and that this isn't going away. This is just going to take off even further. Great. Thank you. So one final question. We'll open it up to Q&A. Hi, Nick. Nick's here, too. Hi. <laughs> Got the whole crew in here today. Um, so advocacy. 
And, oh, watch out, Kelly. Here you go. Advocacy. Um, You know, it's so important to everything we do. We've talked a lot about, you know, underlyingly legislation and um, the the regulatory environment, the legislative environment has, I mean, era, right? So um, what's on the horizon? What do we need to be paying attention to? I know we've done a lot of work with the ITC lately. This is a big question. Um, But I know we had talked about states, really states being critical um, to advocacy. And so I'd, I'd really like to know, I'm looking at Kelly because I know that we've just worked so fiercely with you lately for, on, on the ITC work. And and you are in the, in I mean, out of everybody on the panel too, you're the professional advocate here among us. Um, so ESA is, is out there in the forefront. So do you want to talk a little bit about um, the current environment uh, from a regulatory standpoint, federal, state, um, you know, just what, what can we anticipate kind of moving ahead and what do we need to get involved with. This is like a rally cry too. So what does everybody here need to get involved with moving ahead? I have, I have, it's a great question. I have three words. Support the ITC. Wait, five for storage. (laughs) 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 Um, Advocacy. Um, It's, it's so interesting because I'm, I, I am in this sort of mindset right now of look back and where we were and where we are now. And it's so interesting because, uh, as, as Laura said earlier, um, 10 years ago when we were advocating, we were advocating on the basis of, you know, sort of, it, we, we said a lot of green power or, and, and as Gil said, it was alternative power. And now we are talking about being a part of the infrastructure of our country. We're talking about creating more jobs than coal has ever created. And we're talking about having a much more sophisticated message than embracing solar, because actually, physically, that hurts. Um, So we're talking about really setting up an infrastructure that is sustainable for us to move forward. And it's it's especially interesting because we've been doing this for so many years that we have developed a much more sophisticated way of looking at not just what the environmental impact is, but being able to actually measure the environmental impact, being able to measure the social impact, being able to measure the financial impact, which frankly, because we're gaining strength in our productivity, we're being able to beat coal and beat natural gas even and beat other resources. So um, in our advocacy, we have many messages for what we'll call at the federal level a somewhat polarized environment. Um, And so because I think clean energy has so much to offer to so many different people, we have those messages. And I think that's important in our advocacy work, especially for energy storage, which isn't necessarily a, a particularly polarizing issue. I mean, who doesn't want a more resilient, efficient, sustainable, and affordable grid for ratepayers, right? Um, because of that, we are able to have a message for each of our constituents on the Hill that we're trying to convince to pass the ITC for energy storage as a standalone resource. Um, if, how many of y'all are familiar with this, uh, this request we're making? Cool. So about 50%. So just a really fast one, and I won't take up too much time because uh, I know we're running short, but um, the ITC for energy storage, all we're asking is to be included as a separate resource. Back when the ITC was set up for solar, it added and included energy storage, which was awesome because solar plus storage, what it, 
it still is. It's like peanut butter and jelly. It's an awesome combination. But storage is there also for wind. It's there for the grid itself as a transmission resource, as a distribution resource. And it shouldn't be limited in its being able to take advantage of this uh, of the ITC just because it's got to be paired with one particular resource. It's not efficient. Um, and so that's what we're fighting for, and we're fighting to get this passed this year. If you go to our website, energystorage.org slash ITC, you can get involved. We will help you figure out who your, who your folks are, what are the messages. You can just send a quick email, send a letter, um, let them know this is important to us. It's important for the renewable industry. So that's it for my commercial. Thank you. That's solid. That's solid. So I'll open it up for Q&A. Does anybody have any questions? Because I know we are winding down. Anybody? I'm going to take this. This Is this one on now? Oh, yeah. Look at that. Thanks, AV guy. Anybody with questions? Kevin Grisham. So for, first off, Laura, thanks for pulling this together. I mean, it's a great panel, great discussion to start a day off. Um, the, I'm Kevin. No, I got to say my name. And okay, Kevin Gresham with Eon. Sorry. Uh, thank you. The, the communications guy, right? Yeah. All right. So. Um, Kind of to a point, you know, Gil mentioned the Budweiser ad uh, where I immediately got a text from my sister saying, is that your wind farm? And I had to say, no, I wish it was. <laughs> um, but to Greg's point, too, about, um, you know, there is part of America, part of, the, you know, that just doesn't realize where we are. And, you know, like Budweiser, you know, Walmart, uh, some some political folks that that frankly don't support the industry always talk about the future with, you know, turbines and solar panels in the background. Um, I, I kind of wonder about the brand for renewables and how you perceive maybe on <clears throat> excuse me, on a national level, you know, how. You know, kind of what's the health of the renewable brand and ways to uh, kind of take it to the next step, you know, like some of our competitors. Turn this over to Gil, because I think I see attitude shifts from messaging. Mm -hmm. Unbelievable. Thank you, Kevin. Are you a plant? No. No. (laughs) One moment. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I... Great question, Kevin. We've talked about this, and I think, you know, we need to stop preaching to the choir and uh, really get to the heartland more. And I think as we get more sophisticated in our marketing and communications, we ought to be, have to also be aware of some uh, some risks and some concerns as this explosion of development takes off. Um, plug for Rob and what they're doing in Fresh Energy. Um, how how are we what are we doing on a community level what are we doing and talking about um transitioning some of these legacy industries supporting those policies so we're seeing more as sort of the fabric of american communities getting much more sophisticated just asking for specific incentives although i do want to say that the energy storage incentive if there's going to be one specific incentive it should be for energy storage maybe offshore wind because it didn't benefit however um that's gonna how we're gonna get more into the fabric and the brand's gonna be associated with this is a community there you know ball games and barbecues that's who's minds we still have to shift it's not this sort of coastal elites who are already bought in um so how that how that manifests itself in marketing decisions 
in uh, community relations programs. We're going to have to really amp it up there. And then I would see in, say in D.C., uh, we're going to have to get on the same page, which is hard with all these diverse industries that are maturing, and, and go in with one ask because there's going to be a moment on a policy. We're going to, because of the sort of polling 80-20, we're going to have a shot at something if, if all lines up. So we better be ready to ask for something ambitious that's going to move the needle. I would just make a plug for something that um, recognizes the momentum we have in the electricity sector, but also starts to look at how we can get carbon out of other parts of our economy, particularly transportation, uh, that embraces efficiency because uh, the, the horses left the barn as it relates to the electricity sector. We need to accelerate that. But we got 10, 15 years to really focus on some other sectors, get carbon out of our economy while still growing. And uh, that's where I think I'd like to see this industry have a bigger perspective. Communities, health, families, personalize this. We've got the stories. We've got the people. We've got the commercial momentum. So I'd like to see that more as these big developers grow. Thanks, Gil. I was thinking about the finance piece. Mm -hmm. So the finance folks, I mean, communities, barbecues, soccer moms, all that is great. But from a finance standpoint, um, you know, you, you, Rubicon does a lot of different types of projects. It's not just energy, right? So uh, tell us a little bit about messaging and brand around renewables in your universe, because you're not just swimming in renewables. You've got a lot of other things going on there. Yeah, our heritage is infrastructure. So right now, about 70% of our business is dealing with highways, toll roads, trams. We just, you know, we in our past financed all the cell phone towers in Ireland, things like that. And I think uh, it, it's, you know, having those those uh, vantage points of big dollars, right? Even now with our projects in renewables, right, it's nothing compared to what you see the billions of dollars going to infrastructure. So really changing the dynamic of the conversation, making it infrastructure play, right? Not marginalizing renewables, saying it's an infrastructure play here. This is in unity with storage. It's in unity with smart transmission. We start getting into data centers. We start really plugging into making renewables actually the center of energy generation and the storage of energy really the center of the conversation with spokes affecting how do we get to sustainable transportation? How do we get into green buildings, right? And really making it um, a bigger pitch. And that's how you really bundle assets together. And in our industry, Many of the portfolios now, especially with these larger companies, are all bundled, right? So you're bundling not only, let's say, the energy assets, but also the green building assets or the energy efficiency assets. That's another industry. I mean, they always say the first renewable energy is energy efficiency, right? I think that's Terry Callahan used to say that all the time. Mm -hmm. So we really need to you know, factor in for that. And then I wanted to also add in terms of our brand and, and Kevin, to what you were saying before and Gil, what you responded to. I feel it's really important, especially in the banking sector, that we not only focus on these mega projects, right, with the, especially in the CNI space, but we actually start to support things like grid alternatives, right? Low-income housing, for example, helping make renewables accessible to all. Because it's nice to see a Budweiser commercial with wind turbines in the back and a Budweiser saying, hey, we're going 100% renewables. But at the end of the day, when I'm washing my car, uh, you know, using, of course, you know, energy, uh, water efficiency uh, technology as a hose. You know, when I'm talking to my neighbor who just gets a Tesla, you know, talk to them and say, okay, wh why did you get that Tesla? You know, and, 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 you know, it's been amazing. I live in Richmond, Virginia. I commute to Manhattan weekly. And 
three of my neighbors have, you know, you know, Teslas or, you know, Chevy Volts. And I always ask them, and they're not at all related to renewables, right? They're all in, in tech or in, you know, they work for Dominion or whatever. They all said, well, we felt that at the end of the day, the economics made sense. And I think at the end of the day, we have to hammer that home. And, that, and we have and we have people like my neighbors in Virginia um, say, this just made sense. And they're not scared to ask, okay, how does the charging technology work in my garage, right? Um, and, 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 you know, even more, I mean, those are the ones that vote at the end of the day. And it doesn't, and, you know, renewables really needs to be a partisan. I mean, I... From the day I die, I have always been the, the unicorn in this industry, and I, I really believe that it's an apartisan issue that affects all of us, right? Electricity goes to all of our houses, no matter what you believe in, and we really need to fight about that. And I think that's where the 80-20%, when you look at the demographics, when you look at uh, geographic spread of renewable support, the Southeast has completely done a 180. Yeah. If you look at what Georgia with the PUC commissioners, right? Yeah. If you look at Virginia, right, Dominion last week announcing the 220 offshore wind turbines, right? If you look at, you know, what we've done with clients like Southern Current in South Carolina, right, or New Energy Equity in Maryland and in Ohio, it's really going to the Rust Belts. It's going to these places and supporting, like I said, grid alternatives. Another group that I really urge you all to support is CELI, the um, you know, Clean Energy Leadership Institute, just because these are the next generation of leaders. We need to support them, and uh, especially in those areas where um, the economy needs to be bumped up. And again, it's constant economic renewal. And I feel like during ERA, we did a good job of really pushing that messaging, and then we kind of laid back off of it. We let CNI be the, the big thing we're looking at in these corporations. I think it's time to come back to that messaging, especially in the next election cycle, right? So I'll stop there. So I went a little over. I don't know. No. Greg or Anybody else? Yeah. I have just one thing I'd like to add, and maybe <laughs> this goes back to fundamentals. And you heard Gil talk about it, and you talked about it a little bit as well, Tom. If you want to message clean energy renewables to the, the fat part of the curve in, in America, you can't abstract it. It can't be something that benefits something else or somebody else or some other place. You have to make it relatable to the people you're addressing. Because if it's somewhere else, they're prone, A, to be skeptical, and B, they don't have any reference to question and, and explore and figure out whether it's true. If you make it relatable to them and their lives, they can then probe and say, well, really? Do, you know, what about this? What about that? Um, ultimately, at the end of the day, what does it do for me mm-hmm. is an important question. And once we can start to connect those dots between um, more clean energy in the system, more storage in the system, right, means your bill is going to be lower or your bill is going to be more predictable because you're not buying, like, what was Texas a couple of weeks ago, right, the uh, price spikes. You're not, you're not subject to wild variations. Once you can bring that home to folks and say, this is what it's going to do for you, then you win the battle. It's, it's game over. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Agreed. Anybody else have any questions? Oh, one in the back. Hi, Jen. How are you? Good morning. Good morning. Hi, everyone. I'm Jen Bristol. I'm the director of communications at SIA. And when I was watching uh, some of the recent debates, I was watching as you know Kamala Harris was saying, oh, yeah, I don't want to give up cheeseburgers and whatnot. How do we get around the messaging and the notion that you have to give something up in order to benefit from renewable energy? Ooh. Like sight lines, land use, all that. Ooh. All right, the panel's going to be quiet. Think about this one for a moment. I didn't hear those remarks. This is how I'd counsel clients. I didn't hear those remarks. I can't comment on those. But what I can say 
<laughs> so I think education in America is very important, and we're going to pivot on to healthcare next. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much. Anybody else want to take that? <laughs> we'll end up on the national elections. So this is going to this is going to sound easy. It's it's hard, but it's going to sound easy. Um, don't let your comp- opponent control the conversation, right? You have to be in there first or louder or, right, don't be on the receiving end mm-hmm. because it's usually not good, <laughs> or at least it's harder, right? So I'll go back to the messaging, right? Be out there. Um, act like you're the winner, half of Own it. Yeah. Own it. Yeah. yeah, and I would say, listen, um, take a play from the technology industry. This has completely revolutionized how we do all business, and it was a smooth transition. If you had sold somebody 10 years ago, listen, you'll be able to do your email, you'll be able to do your banking, you're going to be able to do all this. All the naysayers were saying, oh, there's totally challenges to this. Um, and I think that the play is, listen, just like the technological evolution and communications occurred where you had societies like in India they jumped from not having – they didn't even put in a landline infrastructure because it was smarter just to jump to cell phones, right? Same thing here with renewables. This is actually something where it's a smooth transition at the end of the day. It's not as hard. You're not giving up as much as you think you are. Um, you know, you might be giving up your pager, you know, for all those that remember getting paged exactly. in high school and doing all those codes to get those pictures on those pagers, remember? Um, you're giving up things like that, but I think you have to take a step forward, right, and really think about what you actually are, you're gaining, Versus what you're losing, right? So it's a whole half glass full, half glass empty, and uh, marginal approach. And I think Kelly. Yeah. Um, so, so not to channel my Finnish husband, but it's a red herring. The whole hamburger discussion, right? I mean, we are nowhere in the we are nowhere in our path that we need to give up eating hamburgers. We are talking about just being smarter about the way we're using energy, and I really way we're using and generating and delivering energy, and I. Uh, it may be this sort of culture that we're in right now, but I dismiss those sorts of discussions because the real discussion is about how we're going to change our economy. And so let's get back to the. So I laughed like heck at Laura's comment, but it is a little bit. Let's deflect on the, the silliness and let's get back to what's really important and what's really immediate. I stand up for burgers. <laughs> Immediately deflect, dismiss, disarm yes. the stupid burger question. But hey, guy, I feel like I'm the, I don't work in consumer, but have you tried the impossible Whopper at Burger King? It's pretty good. No, I, I, I mean, honestly, I love burgers. Start, I, I honestly, like, it, this would be the hardest thing for me to give up because I love them. Burger diet, right? I just love burgers. But every fourth burger can be an impossible whopper. And again, I mean, it doesn't taste that different with all the damn special sauce on it. So, I mean, this, these are a distraction and it's absurd, but uh, notionally, then you do have a for example. And that's not me saying, well, I mean, you tried this garden burger at the local health food store. It's just as good. Trust me. It's like, no, you like whoppers? Try the impossible foods burger. By the way, it is pretty good. I'm not lying. Try it. <laughs> Uh, I just wanted to comment. You mentioned what about land use? You're taking away my land. You know, your impact. Just before we close, I just wanted to hit that one. And there was just an article, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, about how farmers 
today are, you know, looking to solar to help them out. <laughs> and, you know, that's always something, right? How about that? And so there are benefits for everybody in this. There are benefits for communities and there are benefits for farmers. And um, we're using less and less land as technology evolves. And we're also getting smarter. One thing I'd like to get all of you marketing people out there to help with is the perception that solar has a huge impact on the land. We're getting smarter about that. There is pollinators out there. There's, you know, we're looking at how to be biodiversity. We've got a project where kit fox are hiding out from coyotes under the panels. So we have to help shift that perception that that's an impact and something that's getting worse. In fact, it's a way to make all of it better. I never thought we'd use the word coyote this morning. Thank you. That's awesome. <laughs> wow, I'm such an East Coaster. I never used that word. Uh, okay, I'm going to wrap up because I know the hotel wants us to wrap up too. So thank you so much. I know we started on a thank you, and I'm going to thank all of you for um, for waking up early and um, coming down and sharing breakfast with us. It really is a shared breakfast um, and a shared moment with us. Well, and, and Laura, you know, congratulations on 10 years. Well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, thanks. Thanks. And I will wrap up with, with all of you. Uh, start on a thank you, end on a thank you. Thanks to each of you for all of your support and your leadership. Um, we couldn't have done it without you. Um, we really couldn't have. And so ending on a thanks to all of you is the most important thing. So thanks so much, everybody. Have a good day. Have a great show. All right, all right, Solar Warriors. I do hope that you enjoyed that live panel recorded on behalf of Silverline Communications at their breakfast panel during Solar Power International 2019 in Salt Lake City. Clean energy 10 years after the American Reinvestment and Recovery Act. What a fantastic journey. Deep gratitude again to Laura Taylor and Ellen Bacchus for having invited me to emcee the event. We are ever so grateful and honored to host this conversation here as well on Suncast. If you are looking for more episodes from SPI or just the back catalog of Suncast itself, you can go to mysuncast.com where you can hear this and many more leader stories, founder adventures, tips, tidbits, and tactical advice on how to grow your clean energy career. Again, that's mysuncast.com. Keep an eye out as we will be publishing more episodes from the podcast lounge. And I hope that you'll return. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.